Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Tara Talk. Hi, everyone. This is Tara Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. Today on the show, we are talking about the fictionalization of the psychopath. I had a lot of fun researching this and I did, I did too man this is I think this is why we do the podcast <laughs> probably is this kind of stuff yeah in probably. a lot of ways so I think this was a good I think it's why it's why the true crime part of the podcast came in yeah I and think. the true crime and mental health together right mm-hmm. so um as many of you know we started this um a year and a half ago now or so or a little God, over that really been that long I know Mostly because we loved Halloween, and then we figured out we loved horror movies, and we wanted to start a horror movie podcast. And then, you know, as uh, therapists and psychologists, we um, got into the what we always get into, which is psychopathology. <laughs> so mm-hmm. here we are, and we talk probably way more about this stuff than we do about horror movies at the moment but i'm trying to introduce a lot more of that into the shrink chat show because i still watch a ton of horror movies we've talked about psychopathy on uh, so many different episodes of the show in different ways um true and psychopaths are i mean it's a colloquial term we don't really use that so much in mental health but it's how we would maybe view an extreme Indivi- uh, an in- individual with extreme antisocial personality disorder mm-hmm. um, who at times can can be physically violent, but not always. Mm-hmm. Um, so prepping for the show, I did want to break down a little bit like the primary versus secondary psychopathy. Great. And so what we mean by that is primary psychopaths. And again, these the, the, I just want to put this out there. It, there's so many different theoretical orientations around... Um, just how psychopathy is it, you know, nature, nurture. I, 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 I'm not trying to go there today, guys. I'm going to talk about this just really like we're talking about movies today. So basically when we, we typically think about psychopathy, it's someone who was born, there's a suggesting a genetic basis there. Okay. So primary psychopaths are deficient in affect or emotion, usually from birth, suggesting that there is a genetic component, um, they're oftentimes much more aggress- physically aggressive and impulsive than a secondary psychopath um, and, and much more so than someone who's just diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. When we talk about secondary psychopaths, we're typically referring to what some people will call a sociopath. So these are people who have been shaped more so by their environment we actually encounter more sociopaths than we do psychopaths. Psychopaths are actually very rare and not all of them will end up, um, end up becoming physically violent because it will also depend on their environment, whether uh, or not that trait gets triggered. And we, we have talked on the show before about people who know that they have a a genetic makeup uh, um, and historically have psychopathy in their family, but they've never acted out on that. So um, sociopathy is typically what we will see when we're talking about this. And sociopaths, a lot of times, um, they they can... 
definitely be physically aggressive, and many of them are serial killers. But they also, a lot of them have had abusive childhoods, um, and they're often described as having more fear and anxiety than primary psychopaths, because primary psychopaths um, have a deficiency in their emotional brain. So they, they have a very low fear response. So that's why when you're looking at a sociopath, you might see them actually react more to fear and anxiety than you would to somebody who's a primary psychopath. So before I go into the subtypes, did you want to add to that? Or is there anything that you agree? No, the only thing, no, I I agree with everything you're saying. I, the, my thought when you were talking about it was that we all know a sociopath, we all know a secondary psychopath. We all know a sociopath. We all know many, we might not know it, know it, Yeah, but they're, they're among us. Yeah, And so, um, as we'll get into it, the fictionalization of the psychopath takes many forms, and that's why they're not all sort of the same bird. That's right. Know? That's right. And, and um, but to your point, as sociopathy is actually quite common, and it, it was, it's really like a narcissism on steroids. Um, and there's a spectrum, too. There is a spectrum. It's like we can colloquially joke about like, oh, there's my sociopath coming out or whatever. And that's yeah. why we can do that. Yeah. Is because that we all have a natural way of um, being self-absorbed in some moments, mm-hmm. right? But it's not just self-absorption that these characters that we're going to talk about today were, are not, we did not pick ones that are just... <laughs> are just self-absorbed no no we we definitely looked at the exaggeration (laughs) yeah but sociopaths a lot of times where that spectrum turns from narcissism into sociopathy i think is the sadism Mm -hmm. so you know narcissists tend to be incredibly reactive where sociopaths i think are more proactive like narcissism is a is an injury it's a defense they're not uh they a lot of times they don't necessarily know on a conscious level that they're being abusive. They're reactive because of their injury. And and I'm not making excuses. They're pains in the asses. Explanation. And they're, yeah. And they're abusive, (laughs) but sociopathy is, is one step further where there's a level of awareness and a level of sadism, which is where you will then get into like the serial killers and things. Some of them are anyway, not all of them. Some of them, you know, run the country. Yeah. Just, just as, just as we've all, as we've talked about before, there's, of spectrum and Mm -hmm. there's different levels and there's different, um, you know, sometimes when we talk about this stuff, because we do talk about it quite a bit, um, I get into a headspace of like, Oh God, more psychopath stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. But then I sit down, I start researching the episode or the movies or the person that we're talking about. And there's just like in any kind of therapy or psychology, I do exactly what I want the audio, the, the um, listener to do, which is I I lean into all of the idiosyncrasies and I see all of the differences. Mm-hmm. And so on the outset, I can understand, like I can get, um, you know, I can get psychopath fatigue <laughs> doing this show. No, for, but like when you asked me, do you want to do, you know, we need to talk about Kevin. I was like, Oh, it's just like, you're going to make me watch that. Not again. Yeah. And you know, she doesn't know this, but I'm going to ask her to watch another movie. That's oh, hard to watch. But, um, but that's what it is. And so every time I get this, so one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode is like the f- fictional psychopath gives us an opportunity to talk about something that isn't real, but is real. Yeah, true. <laughs> so I, it's funner. Somewhere so, between sleep and awake. It's slightly funner. So we're just doing a little bit of, it's slightly funner. We're going to talk about some movie characters that you guys know about. So, so uh, subtypes. Yeah. Okay. When we're looking at this from just a 
surface sort of sure place. Four different subtypes that I found when I was looking this up. So we have what's called the classic idiopathic, which would be our garden variety psychopath. So they score the highest on all sections of the widely used hair psychopathy checklist, otherwise known as the PCLR, which we've talked about in other episodes. Mm-hmm. So these people will are generally show very uh, low fear response. There's a lack of inhibition and a lack of empathy. Uh, much of it's rooted in biology. So there's genetic components to it or, or something happened in utero. Um, outwardly calm, but capable of extreme cruelty. They could snap, or if they have an agenda, they might be able to carry themselves a certain way Mm -hmm. but uh, if something is triggering to them that very primitive reptilian brain will kick right in so that's Mm -hmm. the classic idiopathic then we have and some of these can overlap some of these can certainly overlap so it's humanity right right (laughs) um then we have the manipulative psychopath so this person tends to be a good talker they're associated with crimes involving fraud. We will often see these people in high executive positions. Mm-hmm. They will use charm, seduction, and deception to exploit their victims. And they are extremely adept at maintaining a mask. So a good book to maybe look at uh, would is Snakes and Suits, mm-hmm. which talks a lot about the manipulative sociopath. Um, these are, yeah, these are high executives that, do anything it takes to get to the top. And where they're different from the classic is that, like I said, they are adept at maintaining a mask, which is very hard for a lot of psychopaths. That mask will drop because of impulsivity. Um, Then we have the macho. Uh, So they lack the glibness and charm. Okay. Hmm. They're more overt very annoying. They might walk into a room and you're like, Oh God, this guy's a narcissist or this woman's (laughs) a narcissist. Um, But they, manipulate through force and intimidation tends to go to prison for drug related charges. So these are people who they're very outward. Um, kind of reminds me of Ramirez a bit. Yeah. I mean, I realize he had a little bit of swagger, Mm, but not very very much. No, no. I agree. I think he's definitely macho and a bull in a China closet. He's like a combo of like the classic and the macho. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we have our pseudo psychopaths, which are sociopaths. Um, who show antisocial behavior but score lower Mm -hmm. on the PCLR, although uh, thought to suffer primarily from other disorders, this can be coupled with psychosis. Um, They're prone to violent outbursts. So there might be also a mental illness component coupled with um, sociopathy, which would make sense to me because if if they're sociopaths and there's environmental stuff and other things that could be uh, contributing to their behavior. So those are are four subtypes. Um, before I get into the the movie piece of it, is there anything you wanted to comment on or, or? No, while you're no, while you were listing off those, um, and I think that gives a really excellent like context for the listener of how we're gonna talk about these things, because then what we're gonna do is we have these movies that we identified and agreed to watch. And then we're both going to bring like a few of our other maybe favorites or some other discussion ones from Mm. the fictionalized world of the psychopath. And I was just thinking as you were describing the different ones, I was like, yeah. And I was kind of putting them in my, (laughs) I was, you know, that person goes there. Yeah. That's what we do as humans, right? Mm -hmm. We put people in boxes. Mm -hmm. So as, as, and that we organize and that's the dialectic of psychology is actually the thing I was thinking is the dialectic of psychology is that we 
um, we unpack the boxes and we put them back in the box. So like the DSM, often in um, a psychologist level of psychology with testing and um, all of that, there's like a lot of boxes. We're we're checking boxes, we're putting people in boxes, we're describing boxes, we're giving people diagnoses so that they can get certain treatments and go to certain places and we can bill for that. And there's just all of this business and all of these boxes. And then there's also unpacking the box like we were talking about before and seeing people as individuals and how they've each got to where they were and not pathologizing. So that I think is the dialectic that the psychological industry holds on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. We both have to hold that in our psyche in that we have to conform to the boxes and because the boxes are important for medication, for the services that people can get, um, the treatments that people can have access to, for the family members to understand what is going on with their family member. Um, The boxes are important and the boxes are not the only thing. Mm -hmm. So we're going to kind of present it from that way in a fun and light manner. Yes. With all of the psychopaths (laughs) on TV. (laughs) With all the bloodshed. (laughs) That's the serious part. Um, So that's our setup. We're going to take a break. And then we're going to come back and have a much longer discussion about all of our favorite fictionalized psychopaths. We will be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi, everyone. We are back. We you, are. You wanted to start with something, I believe. I, I found this article online um, through Soft Panorama, one word. And they're talking about psychopaths in movies and how they have ch- how it has changed. Um, so I'll just read to you. It's a couple paragraphs really quickly. And I think it'll help us kind of ease into talking about our our peeps for today. Mm -hmm. So psychopathy in film is often portrayed in an exaggerated fashion to enhance the dramatic properties of a character or characters to render them memorable. Right. I mean, we want to, in which we have the ones that have been written in in these really popular movies from the past. We Mm -hmm. remember them because of the exaggeration. So typically a psychopathic character in a film is often in the role of a villain where the general characteristics of a psychopath are useful to facilitate conflict and danger. Because the definitions and criteria for psychopathy have varied over the years and continue to change even now, many characters in notable films have been designed to fall under the category of a psychopath at the time of the film's production or release, but not necessarily in subsequent years. So early representation of psychopaths in films were uh, were often designed with a poor or incomplete understanding of a psychopathic personality, they were often caricatured as sadistic, unpredictable, sexually depraved, and emotionally unstable or manic, um, with a compulsion to engage in random violence and destruction, usually with a series of bizarre mannerisms such as giggling, laughing, or facial tics. The public's overall unfamiliarity with mental disorders made this depiction acceptable and even perceived as realistic at the time of release. 
So one exception to this depiction, and I really want to watch this, Shannon. I don't know if you've seen it, but I'm a huge fan of Fritz Lang. Metropolis is one of my favorite silent films ever made. Um, is he did the 1931 film M, um, played and the 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 child he's a serial killer played by Peter Lorre, but he um, for 1931 they say he was actually a really great. Um, like remarkable depiction of an actual psychopath. And I watched a couple clips from the film, but he would ritualistically murder children and a substantially more realistic depiction of what would eventually be known as a serial killer. So he was, Fritz Lang was really ahead of his time developing this character, but the notoriety of serial killers changed the depiction of psychopathic in, uh, psychopaths in film, such as John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, etc. So mm. it has evolved through time, and once the 70s and 80s came about, we started to look at um, serial killers and psychopaths from also from a, a mental health place, not just from a legal or law enforcement place, and that really did change, um, you know, the way we now write them in films. Absolutely, um, I have not seen that movie. I don't think I. I've always pronounced it Peter Laurie, but I don't know. Oh, if that's you're right. right or not. It, it might be Peter Laurie. I, yeah. I'm willing to say that I wouldn't yeah. know. <laughs> um, he's from Hungary. Yeah, I he think. plays Beckert. Uh, I saw a couple clips from this film. And he's he, a pretty amazing actor he, that was yeah. far before our time. But um, And Fritz Lang really just, for silent films, he knew how to pull out... Um, the emotion of a character, you know, at that time, sometimes it was so over exaggerated and over the top because yes. it was silent. Um, but if Metropolis was a great film and then they redid it and Giorgio Moroder redid the soundtrack in 1985 to 80s artists um, <laughs> that told the story. It's really, really, really awesome. But um, so I want to see it just because I love Fritz Lang, but it's supposed to be pretty frightening. Great. Yeah, yeah. no. And I mean, if we're, since we are, since we've drug ourselves into this, <laughs> talking about psychopaths all the time, um, you know, maybe we should also be up on the history of mm -hmm. its portrayal. And, and this is one of those times when we're trying to do that. So Scarface yeah, is the first one we're going to talk about. So, Tony, good old Tony. Tony Montana is how I used to <laughs> always say it growing up. Um <laughs> Not growing up as a person. That's how I've always said it. I can't help myself whenever I talk about the 1983 film Scarface and its star Al Pacino as Antonio Montana. I can't help but say Tony Montana because that's how he sort of says it. Um, I, for one, love this movie. <laughs> and I guess because, I mean, it's an Oliver Stone movie. 1983, Al Pacino, he's a drug lord, basically. Uh, he's a Cuban drug lord, and he's exceptional in this role. So one of the things we know about Tony Montana is that he is, how should we say? Well, he's using a lot of drugs, mm -hmm. for one. So lots, lots of coke. Like, as a... <laughs> As a psych person, let's look at the look at the full picture. He is uh, impulsive. He is in uh, quick to anger. He is using a lot of amphetamines. So those qualities could be explained by the amphetamines, but you know that's part of the 
interesting thing that's going on here for Tony. Um, Tony, I believe personally would, it would be easy to diagnose with antisocial personality disorder. And secondarily, I think he'd be easy to diagnose with narcissistic personality disorder. Um, yeah, that's where I stand on Tony. I don't know. Do you remember seeing this movie? I know it's pretty old, but I watched it later after like everyone yeah. had seen it and talked about it. It was um, only the horror movies you saw when you were four. That's not, right. Not Scarface. Not this kind of violence. <laughs> right. Um, There's no, a lot of I, violence. You know it, I think it was just like all the Godfather. I mean, all of it was, the, yes. that whole, we didn't watch those as much. We were like, you know, the 80s slasher house and watching that sure. stuff. We did, I mean, my brothers watched Godfather. I Again, I watched those, again, much later. Mm -hmm. Just like with Scarface, I watched much later. It's incredibly violent. Um, yes, very violent. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer is in it. She's fantastic and so young. A, who was a big movie star at the time. Nowadays, people might not even know who she is, but she was a big movie star at the time, so it was a big get. Um, There's a very famous scene where she walks down the stairs in a... <laughs> in a dress that is very revealing. And I remember it was really famous because of that. <laughs> um, the thing about, I have some, I have a favorite, there's a scene where he's drunk and drugged and you know, you're looking and it's like this big dinner scene. It's mm -hmm. like in this, <laughs> I don't even remember like in this big, uh, and he just, the way he speaks. So if we're talking about the charisma, charismatic part of the character the way he talks he speaks with more passion like in his little tiny finger than pretty much anyone you've ever met and i think that's the charm i mean he's one of the biggest villains of all time mm -hmm. i would say in movies and he's also um just a classic criminal psychopath now as far as your your setup here um I don't know that much about Tony Montana's childhood. I don't remember that we get to know that much about it. So whether he was born with it or his environment shaped his behavior, you could make an argument that his environment shaped his behavior because of being um, who he is. So I'm not sure I, if he's primary or secondary. Yeah, I, I definitely put him in the macho category. But he's definitely in, as far as your subtypes subtypes are concerned, he's definitely in the macho. He rules with force and intimidation, um, mm -hmm. abuses his girlfriend. And, you know, there's some pretty, if you have not seen Scarface, because maybe it's not of your generation, um, say hello to my little friend. That's a good one. He's, uh, yeah, he's, he, I mean, I would, describe him as reactive impulsive he's pure id mm -hmm. um he's narcissistic antisocial i had the same things down for him mm -hmm. he's supposed to be inspired by al capone um and his last name is actually from joe mantana the nfl quarterback that's where they developed his name from so he uh he's so overt mm -hmm. i don't i don't get that i mean i understand the passion i don't know if i would see him as charming by any means, I think he's a lot. He's very intense mm -hmm. and very misogynistic. Um, and foul-mouthed. And foul-mouthed and unapologetic <laughs> and incredibly narcissistic Arrogant. and misogynistic, yeah. But he is that. But All like you said, a lot of the impulsivity is the drug use. And also, if he was in prison, being in that culture for so long and just 
having a hyperactivated nervous system survival mechanism, he's always in on the defense. Mm-hmm. He's not the cool, calm, collected guy we're going to talk about next. No, he's a macho psychopath under what Kathy broke down earlier. So on the flip side, probably all the way to the other end, as far as character makeup and presentation is Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs is, was directed by Jonathan Demme. Such a good movie. There's a series on Hannibal Lecter and books written on the character, and he's based on a real guy and all that. But for the purpose of this episode, we're going to talk about Anthony Hopkins' portrayal of this guy, who he's actually a forensic psychiatrist. So he already has a very deep understanding of um, at least how to mimic interpersonal relationships and how to manipulate and coerce people and also how to get into the deepest parts of someone's psyche and make them vulnerable, which is what he does with um, Jodie Foster's character, Clarice Starling, who is a FBI. She's a student at Quantico who gets pulled out to be on this case. Um, And, he is brought in to help them solve uh, a murder of another serial killer by the name of Buffalo Bill. So Hannibal Lecter, who's just at this point just a notorious part of our film culture when it comes to psychopaths, he is intelligent, he's sophisticated, he's incredibly disarming and charismatic in certain ways. I mean, he's offensive, but he does it in a way that's incredibly charismatic. Um, Wit, he has a lot of wit, um, which disguises his true nature as a psychopath until he starts to talk and then you realize he's really sick. Um, In the movie, he spends the majority of his time in a prison cell behind actually like bulletproof glass because he's been known to break out and... Um, they actually have to keep him incredibly contained. And I remember the, do you remember at the beginning where they say, you know, don't look into his eyes kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, Clarice, she uh, is using him to find the identity of another serial killer. So he is, if we want to go to the top of the show when we're talking about categories, I don't remember much about his childhood. Do you remember them talking about, not in the movie anyway. Yeah, no. I mean, um, I don't remember. Yeah. So I would say this is, he's a manipulative psychopath. He tends to be a good talker. Um, he uses a lot of charm. He exploits his victims. He exploited her quite a bit. Um, so we don't know if he's primary or secondary, but this guy also, again, um, uses his intellect, his intelligence, and his education to as a weapon, essentially. Um, and he's a cannibal. Let's add that to it. <laughs> throw that in there and he's a cannibal well he's a fetishist basically he's got a fetish about eating humans so Mm -hmm. you can add a fetish diagnosis in there with all the other um i would say you know like like you with scarface i don't find him particularly charming but i do find him manipulative Mm -hmm. um i uh yeah i'm not charmed by him no i think he's just very soft-spoken he has this way of where when we look at tony 
Mm-hmm. Tony's. Oh yeah, no, definitely the difference. Like you don't find Tony charming, yeah. uh, but you find him. But you find Hannibal charming, and I'm and I don't. And we're the opposite. So it just it's, it's what you're mm-hmm. you know what you're. We all have reactions to different ones that are that are different. Um, I I love this movie. I mean, this is a this is in our lex in our American lexicon of of movies. Um, amazing. So it's like. Uh, so we're about we're gonna switch into um, American Psycho, the movie American Psycho. So here's what I'm struck by right out of the gate is that Scarface was a book, Science of the Lambs was a book, American Psycho was a book. <laughs> so so far, three three movies uh, that were all based in original uh, literature books that you, one can read. Um, so. Again, this could be a debate about charm. Uh, Patrick Bateman is a fictional character and the protagonist and a narrator as well in the novel American Psycho and also the film adaptation. He's uh, played by Christian Bale. I, I can't remember if this movie made him in America or if there was something before this. Christian but, Bale? Yeah. Well, Newsies made him. Oh, okay. But but he, I mean. This, this is the one I remember. <laughs> <laughs> this this created a very different following. I yeah. think people who weren't like you know the Disney kind of because I mean Newsies he was he's I didn't so, even know oh, about God, that. God, he's so incredible in Newsies yeah. when he was a kid, and then he was also um, in other films when he was younger, and he had more of like a young audience following. But when he did this, this was it, an adult it, breakout. It changed his career. Yeah. This movie, I just rewatched it. This is the one. Um, me too. This is the one I know him of um, from. Anyway, he's like a materialistic Wall Street investment banker guy who actually has a double life as a serial killer, and this has got a tongue-in-cheek voice to it. The storyteller has a tongue-in-cheek voice. It's very. Um, it's like, you know, the killing is mixed with. Music and flair. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an argument for him being charming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think if you were to meet him, w- not you specifically, but if one were to meet him out and about, uh, you would certainly find him good looking um, and you would find him maybe successful or well put together. <coughs> and I think he does he is able to charm and seduce his victims. That's how he gets them into his home or convince manipulates them into um, getting into his house so that he can kill them basically. Mm -hmm. So I mean, he um, does pay them too. Yes. (laughs) Cause there's a pathetic loneliness about him. Part of seduction, I guess is payment. Um, Good talker. I have a, I have a really great quote. He's a fraud from the beginning. Okay. Um, he says, there is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours. And maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable. I simply am not there. Yeah, which is a great. Uh, quote from a great book. This is actually the the first one of the ones we've talked about where I actually read the book first, mm-hmm. um, long ago. But I, because I was reading literature like this <laughs> too early, whereas Kathy was watching horror movies too early. I was reading about psychopaths Psycho and serial killers <laughs> far too young. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there was a series by an author named Lawrence Sanders. It was like the first something. Oh 
God, they were, those were my favorite books. Anyway, um, I'll come up with it later, but yeah, about serial killers and psychopaths. And so, um, yeah, I would say, God, I mean, this movie is so really good and it's such a, a tour de force for Christian Bale, but I would also really, really, really recommend the book. It was a bestseller. and I think it also, I, I don't want to, give any spoilers away because i know people haven't seen it but it it does um do a good job at describing the internal like torment or the appetite mm -hmm. piece of like needing that fix because he's such a good actor and then also because yeah. it was i think because it, it was coming from the book and it's his pov and so you're really getting like yeah what it's like to be inside him and we talk so much on the show about the emptiness of mm -hmm. narcissism and the emptiness of um, the lack of self. Right. Uh, by pretty much uh, many of the people we have talked about so far on the show, it, fictional or non-fictional, mm -hmm. um, that void mm -hmm. and how they're trying to fill that void. Yeah. 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 I just remember when I rewatched it the other night, again, I was so much younger when I saw it and definitely wasn't a psychologist at that point and, um, hadn't studied this type of behavior, at least from a psychological perspective at this point to watch it now and watch that inner torment and watch his inner dialogue mm -hmm. and what he needed to either convince himself of or do to get a release or a reprieve. Mm -hmm. Um, and the exploitation and mm -hmm. the way that he manipulate, and then the jealousy, remember the business cards? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's an interesting guy. He's a, he's a complicated person because he, you know, he has this self-hatred and an emptiness like we've been talking about, and he's really insecure. Mm -hmm. He's just really very insecure. Um, he, he doubts his own sanity. He has periods of psychosis. He hallucinates. Um, he's an unreliable narrative because it's come, come um, I'm narrator, sorry, because it's coming from him. Right. So it's this really interesting take on that. Um, he takes psychotropics <laughs> to yeah. control, to control his emotions. Um, he's, you know, he's a classist. He's a misogynist. He's a racist. He's all of these things. Um, <laughs> He's homophobic. I mean, he's got all the. There's a lot of humor, great humor in this film too. That's though. why I say it's got yeah. a tongue in cheek uh, with the Huey Lewis and the. Yeah. Oh my it's god. Got a very tongue in cheek, a very accessible tongue in cheek, like storytelling way the story is told, and it's got the depth of his insecurity and pain. And I think Christian Bale just portrays that in an exceptional it, it, way. It's also a huge um just smack in the face to Wall Street people yeah, too. Yes, which I think is awesome. True. I don't know. Is this the era of when Wall Street that movie came out? Probably. Uh uh <laughs> in the in the you mean the time that it's supposed to be? Yeah. No, the time that this movie came out. No, when, this when came they out, decided this came to make out in the nineties. The original Wall Street came out with Michael Douglas in the eighties, I think. Gotcha. Um but it it yeah, I mean, it oh, just, this came out in two thousand. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, the original Wall Street, anyway, was eight, you can like just see the influence. Or but yeah, the, it's really just a it, talk about tongue in cheek. Well, and Willem Dafoe is also in it. Josh Jared, Lucas, Jared Leto, yeah, Chloe Sevigny. 
It's a great cast. Samantha Mathis. Yeah. Justin I'll, Theroux. Man. Reese Witherspoon? Yeah, she plays the girlfriend. Yeah. So they're um, all in there. <laughs> Samantha Mathis, I remember from Pump Up the Volume, which is funny because in the movie they go to a club and they're playing Pump Up the Volume. <laughs> um, nice. Nice uh, little yeah. throw in there. Throw in there. Anyway, it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in, in, in January of 2000. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Number four. This movie... And I, I understand this also was adapted from a book, um, I believe. Awesome. Uh, this movie actually, yeah, the, 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 the book is, the novel is called The Executioners. The mm-hmm. movie's called Cape Fear. And there were two different versions. I'm not going to be talking about Robert Mitchum's portrayal of Max Cady, which is a bit different. And he's mm-hmm. a fantastic actor as well. But Robert De Niro scared me in this film. <laughs> um, he this is this was about the time now where so this was 1991. Now I'm like past the young years of horror, and now I'm really being introduced to this type of violence, which to me is actually far worse for a kid to watch. <laughs> um, so he is Max Katie is uh he outwardly he's total alpha male mm-hmm. um but but he has also like a calm confidence and control about him at the same way at the same time and I'm, i'll go into who he is in a moment but beneath this calmness he's an animal um he's incredibly violent he will snap in a moment's notice he has zero remorse um, he's a rapist. He is a sexual sadist and he is, uh, I would categorize him as idiopathic. He uses violence to control his victims. He's obsessive. He's a stalker. He wants revenge. It's incredibly primitive. Single-minded. Single-minded. So his character goes to prison for rape and he wants revenge on the attorney who put him there. And the lawyer's played by um, Nick Nolte in this version. Jessica Lang plays the wife, and Juliette Lewis plays the daughter, who he ends up um, sort of coercing into this summer theater. Um, he gets a hold of her and says that he's the theater director for her school. So he's he's intruding upon and trying to groom his um, Nolte's whole family mm-hmm. without Nick Nolte yet knowing that he's starting to come in because he wants revenge. Eventually he knows what's going to destroy Nick Nolte the most is not killing Nick Nolte, but by raping and, um, you know, seducing his daughter and his wife. Mm-hmm. So that's what he does. And he, um, he has a scene with, uh, God, I can't think of her name right now. I'm gonna have to look her up. Um, in the Ju- movie, Juliette Lewis. No, 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 no. With um, Nolte's like assistant or something. Oh yeah, she's great. Uh, she's so wonderful in this it was role. When she was young, I'll look it up while you talk. Beats the living shit. There's a very, very, very violent scene, and there's nothing tongue in cheek about this movie. New. Um, he to me is what most people when they think of a violent psychopathic rapist. Yeah. This is the guy of our nightmares. Yeah. Right here. That's what I would have to say about Ileana Douglas. Yeah, Ileana Douglas. She's great in this, and she's all like very vulnerable. And um, again, because he's so charming, and he seduces her and takes her back to a hotel room and just destroys her. Yeah, he as as they do in stories. 
Um, he's the psychopath that is single-minded and picks apart your whole world. So goes after the people you care about first to try and torture you. And then is circling, circling the wagon, so to speak. Um, and torturing everyone. Yeah. I rewatched this movie this week, Mm -hmm. um, because I hadn't seen it in a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to rewatch it to even know what we're talking about. Not that long ago. So before I rewatched it, the thing that I was most struck by when we when I first saw it a long time ago was the scene between him and Juliet Lewis. Yes, and I remember, and it didn't strike me in the theater. It, yeah, it didn't strike me the way it struck me then. So mm-hmm. I'm glad I have that sense of memory because when I very uncomfortable first scene. saw that scene, you know, I was much younger, and so I was not far away from knowing what that would have been like as a 15 year old when he is, he seduces her. He does, they don't have sex, but he's very seductive with her mentally. And I remember just, I remember it being uncomfortable, but I also can admit to being seduced to Robert De Niro's um, skill in that moment of like how he was, playing and toying with her and Juliet Lewis's performance. And that's, you know, one of her breakout performances like that innocence. She was so spot on. And I just remember her as a young actress because she was so natural and you even see it in her body. She does this like gangly, awkward Awkward. 15 year old body through the whole movie. And, and she's, She's like really vulnerable in the moment, but she's really intrigued. Like you just see it on and, her and face. And believable. Oh, she's it's so, so believable. believable. They both were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being a younger person and and thinking, I I know what that feels like when an older man, when you're 15, is you're terrified of them and you're so intrigued by the feelings that it brings up in you and so that that scene and it's a very famous scene Mm -hmm. and it was talked about for a long time um lots of controversy you know because they kiss Mm -hmm. (laughs) so um very effective so i rewatched it and um it was interesting watching that scene i don't have that feeling anymore but i see the performances and uh very interesting. You know, I was charmed by the fact that um, Robert Mitchum and Gregory Peck, who were both in the original, yeah. have small parts in this yeah, one. Definitely. And I just thought that was a wonderful Scorsese, yeah. you know, callback to the originals. And De Niro is, he's really good in this. He <laughs> is. And he's, he's ripped. Yeah. Oh my God. Because he's just coming out of prison. He's all tatted and I ripped. Thought, you know, and. and Depending on what you like, you just see it. It's this, it's an animal macho magnetism. And if he wasn't a freaking stone cold psychopathic rapist, it's like, oh, there's a there's a masculinity yeah. coming off of him that's hot, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like there's just this masculine seductiveness that's coming off. Mm-hmm. And then they, and maybe that's why the Scarface thing. I could say I could speak from a place of like I could see his charm, even though he's just a total animal. Like I don't want to be in the same room with either one of them, right? But I can see on the screen with that distance, that magnetism. That if you get caught in that web, like I mm-hmm. just I understand it from the victim's perspective of how they get caught in the web. Well, when we come back after the break. 
that's exactly how I felt about one of the characters. We're actually just going to keep talking because we already took a break. Okay. (laughs) I didn't know if we were going to break again. No, no, no. We'll break for the what the hell later. So. So, yeah. What what were you going to mention? I was going to say from a different point of view, it's the way that I felt about Catherine Trammell and Basic Instinct. Oh, yeah. Okay. Being a young female. Yes. Knowing that I was attracted to women. Right. And I'm supposed to... Same thing. Think she's sick. But she's so so hot. Incredibly (laughs) hot and seductive and dangerous and intelligent. So if if you're watching, if you're listening to us right now and you haven't ever seen this film and you're too young to remember it or you just never saw it basic instinct this was really her breakout i mean she had done other movies before this total recall i mean she she'd done a lot but this movie where she played where sharon stone her depiction of Catherine tremel so they describe her as a mix between the classic femme fatale and the new psycho killer um, one of the most evil characters ever created and on Hannibal Lecter's level, but as a female. Mm-hmm. Um, she was actually nominated to be a member of the American Film Institute's Best Villains list. She was also included as one of the best 250 fiction villains ever created. In 2010, Entertainment Weekly named her one of the 100 greatest characters of the last 20 years. She's a novelist. Her character's a novelist. She writes about murder, crime, sex, and violence. And the plot of her novels also uh, mirror a string of, of the murder she commits. So when she's publishing her novels, she goes by her pen name, Catherine Wolf. She has a degree in psychology, which again, like Hannibal, right, has an understanding, a basic understanding, is extremely smart and sophisticated. She's calculated and manipulates Nick, who's played by Michael Douglas, who plays the detective, who totally falls into her web, which I get because I would have. Um, One of my favorite psychopaths ever was her. (laughs) And she intrigues me to this day. I still will watch that, and I'm like, I'm completely... I'm completely seduced. You got, you got me. <laughs> I'm completely. You're going to kill me with her. an ice pick. She's unbelievable in that role. Well, and so that's that's the fascinating thing about this is that it's like whoever you're attracted to, oh. you get it. You can get it because whoever you're attracted to, whether it's men or women, um, there's a psychopath out there for you that could get at you. Yes, and they tend to be incredibly the ones who are sophisticated tend to be incredibly good looking. Yeah. Um, or they have a sex appeal about them that makes them that more, makes them good looking. That makes them good looking. Um and what I think about her character is it's very easy to hypersexualize women in film um and to make that almost like a just a, a no brainer and kind of predictable. I like that there was a control. She was in control of that and used it as a weapon versus a one-dimensional, surfaced, hypersexualized female character. There was a lot of depth. Well, just like to with her. men, male <laughs> these kinds of male characters, mm-hmm. we just we just were talking about it. As far as like, um, we talked about it last week in the in the Koresh in the conversation right. about Koresh because. It's like there's a difference between just like a character who's truly delusional, a person who's truly delusional and coming from a place of believing things that are fictional Mm -hmm. and a person who's doing it from a manipulative place. Right. Right. Like that's what we're talking about as far as psychopathic um, mostly today. 
uh, is we haven't gotten so much into the pseudo psychopath with mental illness type of situation. We right. haven't gotten too much into that, but it's more that that mean that um they're meaning to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's my point. Um, so I I tr and I loved her. She was she. I mean, I loved that movie because it it was a unique at the time, mm -hmm. like a psychopathic female killer was not something we saw very much in the in the big budget films with big stars we just didn't see it that much um i kind of trudged into the sociopath with some other things going on territory for some of my extra choices which one of them was sherlock the character from the british series mm -hmm. played by benedict cumberbatch he's great and it's an amazing series if you have not watched it. Um, he's fantastic in it. And he is played as a sociopath. Mm -hmm. um, he's working on the the right side of justice. Um, but I could also see how he could be on the autistic spectrum and have a little bit of Asperger's syndrome. I can I can all and I would also sense personalities um, some something that I, I see psychology through a personality lens more so than anything else. I sort of start with the personality structure and then go from there, um, which if you are in psychology, you know that's one way to look at things, and there's several. But like, So I'm most drawn to the fact that he's a schizoid personality. Mm -hmm. um, and I just really like his character for sure. But he's certainly narcissistic. He certainly doesn't uh, empathy, empathize with people, but... As far as sociopath, I don't know. It's an interesting question because a an Asperger's syndrome could explain a lot of his behavior as well. Yep. And so could just coming from a schizoid personality disorder yep. um, perspective. That's so, right. so he's one of those ones that um, I'm not going to provide any answers because we don't know. He's a fictional character. but And Sherlock has been depicted so many different ways. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that, that they've kept pretty static, because Johnny Lee Miller, who played um, Sherlock Holmes when Lisa Liu was uh, Watson, that series that was yeah. on, he played it from much more of uh, an Asperger, I know we don't really call it that anymore, but yeah, Asperger place. And there was a, a level of narcissism as we see a lot on that spectrum mm -hmm. um, or a lack of empathy, um, but not so much a sociopath. Right. But, but he but calls that, himself that. That's the, right. But yeah. there's always an underlying. And then uh, what's his face who played it in the movies? Um, Robert Downey Jr. Mm -hmm. plays it very narcissistically, but yeah. he plays a narcissist very well. Yes, because, he does. You know, Iron Man and all He's those. playing to his strengths. He's playing to his strengths. <laughs> so, but there's, I think that character, because he's a savant, you see that, entitlement and sort of yeah yeah mm -hmm. he um he ends up being and also his relationship with watson in the tv series in the british tv series that i'm mentioning his relationship with watson takes this tone of like what you might imagine someone coming from a schizoid perspective mm -hmm. would be coming from where um you know he's attached and so <laughs> do we see you know, sociopaths or psychopaths getting attached, you know. So it's just, it's a complicated one that would make it for an interesting longer discussion. But I'm going to jump right into the, another one that I was thinking about because I'm aware that we've been talking about this for a while. Um, Dexter is another one of my faves. 
um, Dexter uh, from the television series, and he's an antisocial personality disorder. Also my, working on the right side of the law. Also working on the right side of the law. I'm, I kind of did an anti-hero thing here mm-hmm. <laughs> today with those two. Um, but I also think like in what you were, how you were breaking things down at the beginning, like he's a secondary psychopath. He was shaped by his environment. There's this traumatic event that happens when he's three years old and PTSD ensues. And then there could be a, a very there could be a breakdown. There could be a you know a couple hour long conversation breakdown of his personality and where that came from, et cetera. But at the end of the day, um, he's a serial killer on the right side of the law. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So okay, anyway, I brought up some some anti heroes there. I have two more. Um, the one that still haunts me in my dreams. Oh boy. And I've seen the movie I think twice. I don't really ever want to sit through it again. So I hope this is not what you're asking. I'm going to make her. I'm going to force her to. And I think the most, one of the most realistic portrayals of that macho, idiopathic psychopath is Michael Rooker in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. It's loosely based on Henry Lee Lucas, who is a serial killer. Um, It's done in a way that not only is it brutally it's so violent but it's also incredibly it has that humiliation piece to it Mm -hmm. so there are scenes where he breaks into a home and he ties the husband up and makes the wife expose herself while he rapes her and the husband watches and there's a lot of rape humiliation sadism so he um he lives with his roommate Otis, uh, who ends up being introduced to Otis's sister, and his the, Otis's sister is the only one that he ends up really at, attaching to, but ironically, ends up killing her too. Um, but it, he he gets Otis to start doing some of these runs with him, mm-hmm. and from beginning to end, there's zero reprieve. Yeah. It, it, it's the hardest movie I've ever sat through. I, I think I can say definitively. <laughs> um, and I think I yeah. sat through it just because it, it really does depict and break down the mind of a primitive psychopath. Awful. It's almost like you're watching someone in live action. Like you're, you're, they, like a reality show and he's taking a camera. Around so you would him. say it's the idiopathic, the classic? idiopathic mixed with macho. Okay. Um, and then the last one, ironically, is a child, um, and it was Brooke Shields' portrayal of Alice Spages and Alice Sweet Alice. It's a good one. So she's uh, the main protagonist from um, the 1976 horror film Alice Sweet Alice. To, to this day, this movie still creeps me out. <laughs> and she's this deeply disturbed preteen who masterminds several cruel pranks against people, but we don't really know. It's left for interpretation at the end whether she is actually the one who's doing the murders because there's another character involved, but her her twin sister, I'm sorry, her younger sister at the beginning of the movie is murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a, she lives with her divorced mother and younger sister in inner city New Jersey. She displays several disturbing behaviors. And so it's sort of a depiction of like early conduct disorder, mm-hmm. early APD, but also because the movie's written in such a way that it leaves room for whether she did it or not. There's mm-hmm. a lot of suspense. 
but it's the mask. Do you remember the mask? I do. That it's not. A, it's like a Cupid doll or something. Yeah, mask yeah. With the it's raincoat. really disturbing. She's a pretty disturbing character. Yeah, she does a really like good a bad job. seed. She was so famous then. That's what made her famous. Yeah, she she just she, as a young person she was just so she was exceptional. Tw- she was like twelve yeah. years old. Yeah, that's from a book too. I think mm-hmm. um, one of the first horror movies I ever saw. Okay, I, and I was really little when I saw it. <laughs> of course, you were. I was probably like five or something when, when has that ever not no, been my mom's the... best friend always had this shit playing on in the living room they were playing like cards and i'm like mom what is this and then she's like why are you why can't you sleep at night i don't know right mm-hmm. oh gosh all right so that i think that's enough psychopath for today yeah <laughs> Uh, we hope you enjoyed uh, this discussion and that maybe you have not seen all these movies because I know some of them are much, you know, quite old. And so um, if you're into this sort of thing, this gives you some historical reference for, I guess, I don't know, where maybe where our original interest became came from with movies and psychopathy and and how we can go there. One of my definitely one of my um, niche things in psychology is is movies and mental illness and movies and um, criminal behavior it's definitely something that i would love to teach one day so this is my jam so to speak i hope you enjoyed it too i did i loved this one uh, this is kind of my jam too so awesome um yeah i mean i think we could have many many episodes like this if we were willing to watch a whole lot of <laughs> If we were willing to be traumatized? Yes, consistently, which I think is what we're doing anyway. So thank you for listening. We're going to come right back and do a quick What the Hell segment, and we will be right back. Hi, everyone. We're back. This is our What the Hell segment. I am going to go first. Please do. Picture the scene. It's a Halifax bank in London. You're a cashier. And a wannabe bank robber has just turned up at your desk with a gun and an empty bag. Holy shit, right? He says, give me 700,000 pounds in cash. But then, instead of handing you the empty bag, as he no doubt planned, he gets a teeny weeny bit confused and gives you the gun instead. You're confused. (laughs) You're confused. He's confused. But Uh... before... (laughs) Um, I'm sorry. Was this the way this was supposed to go? (laughs) But before he even realizes his mistake, you back off and point his own gun right back at him. (sighs) Sucks to be stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know what's interesting about that is if I think of myself in that situation, not as the robber, but as the bank teller, I don't know what I would do. (laughs) Because now he's unarmed? Yeah, there would be this moment where it's like, am I going to point the gun at him? Would I even think to point the gun at him? I hope I Does would. he have another gun? Does he have another gun? Does he want to stand off? Do I give it back to him? <laughs> Not that you'd have this much time to, I mean, it would be like, brrr, it'd go through That's your head That's what I'm so saying, fast. like the instincts. Yeah. I, you know, I would hope that I would have the instinct to point it at him, but I also know I wouldn't be able to shoot him, so it would totally be a fake out, huh. you know? <laughs> But you never if know with close, adrenaline. If he was close enough, you might. Yeah, if he felt really threatened, you oh, might. Oh, no, I don't mean about skill. I mean being able to, like, psychologically No, I know. Him. If yeah. he felt threatened enough oh, yeah. and, he, and he was close enough, I, I think you might. Yeah. No, I I don't know. 
that's the thing. That's the interesting thing about this is it's like, I've never been in that situation. I wonder if I would have, I feel like I would like shoot him in the shoulder or something just to disarm <laughs> him. But I don't know if I'd like, I don't know. Maybe if I really thought he was coming at me, I, I think I, I might've just like, maybe I would have pointed him at the, the gun at him, but I might've also just fell to the floor behind the desk. Yeah. <laughs> that was my other thought. Like if he's got another gun, I don't want him to pull it. And I also don't want to fire my gun. So I don't know. There was a lot of things that went through my head when I read this. Or just like a blood curdling scream to see if you were annoying <laughs> yeah. enough. Or just hand him back there, the gun. I'm so pause. sorry. I think you I think you didn't want to do this. Here. Uh, yeah. Here you go. This is yours. <laughs> or there's just a pause and there's a <laughs> Yeah, a big screen. Oh my god. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> wow. Um, okay, this took place in Raleigh, North Carolina in 2000, again, 2007. Okay. Someone was stabbed multiple times in an intersection. So 10 police officers responded to the scene. They all flee to the scene trying to get the person, mm-hmm. the victim who's been stabbed. While they were there, in the middle of the day, <laughs> Anthony William, who's not the stabber, decides that because of this traffic jam, that's now happening in the intersection made for some ripe vehicles to steal. Okay. So he waits for a woman to get out of her car. Then he walks right up, jumps into it and tries to drive away. Every that says every policeman in the world came down on top of him. (laughs) One of them even banging on the car hood and shouting to get out. So this officer was less than 15 feet away from him and watching him the whole time when he committed the theft. So when he insists on driving away, they all memorize his license plate. They let him go to avoid, you know, the the dangerous pursuit. And then he's picked up in Virginia when he tried to (laughs) sell the car to a used dealer. But it's like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity. There's been a stabbing and there's a traffic jam. I'm going to steal a car. (laughs) I mean, it's somewhat resourceful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Except the cop that's like, I'm watching you, you idiot. Because <laughs> there's always someone who watches the crowd in this. <laughs> we were just, we were talking before we started recording is it's always the robbers that we talk about. Always. <laughs> it's the people stealing things. Because robbing are... is so impulsive. I mean, mostly. Most of the time it's very Yeah, impulsive. we're not talking about the planned bank robberies. No. We're talking about the impulsive. Like, oh, I can steal a car right now. Yeah, we're all more prone to be an idiot when we're not thinking things through. <laughs> so there's yeah. that. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And we do hope that you tune back in on Friday for the uh, our Shrink Chat show. So thanks so much. We'll uh, see you soon. Uh, this is Tarot Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.